For Christmas yet? I mean, are like some of you are like you ready? You good? You going? I, I, some of you, it's this coming soon. Okay, so I'm gonna finish off this series today. We're gonna we're gonna talk about one more letter to Santa. If you're into that, or if you're an adult, you've grown beyond that. Hopefully, this will relate to us. But before I get there, let's talk Christmas services. If you aren't aware of this, somehow it missed that we're gonna have 11 <clears throat> 11 services. Uh, that anyone and everyone could go to. In fact, one of them in particular that you won't be able to go to uh, are the one at the prison. We're excited because actually I get to be there and, and we have a great thing planned for, for the fellows at RCMU. Uh, but if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, uh, some of you are going to find out there's a couple services already that there's no more tickets. And if you get mad at me because you didn't pre-plan, then you're wrong and I'm right and I just enjoy that sometimes. So, so here's the deal. If you don't know the system, there's tickets. There's tickets for the services. We've made them available now for quite some time, and they're free. I know tickets free, to, but it's because if we didn't do this, everyone would go to the same service, and it would be horrible. Trust me, we've experienced it before. Where we're getting rockers from the nursery and putting them in the lobby, it did not go well. And so there's tickets. you got to get the tickets this is a year that's a little bit different. We've added some stuff for the younger kids because if you've ever had a three-year-old with you in a church service, that should be an Olympic sport just as it is. Uh, it's pretty crazy. So we've got stuff that they'll be able to retain and enjoy. But you got to get your tickets. Go online and get your tickets. But as all our services go, we're going to have an offering. I know some of you are like, I knew it. Church just wants my money. No, that's not true. Let me give you some context behind this. We're having an offering that's going to go to hopefully fund the Shift Garage for the whole year, 2017. If you don't know anything about the Shift Garage, it's something we started a few years back because we noticed and learned that one of the greatest needs in our area is transportation. If you've ever had a vehicle break, you know the stress that comes about from that. If you've had a vehicle break and you don't have the money to fix it, it's a whole other level of stress. And so we started a car garage. We as a church, it's in the budget. We, budget, we, we provide the shop, and there's even a, a team around it that helps make it happen. And, and in fact, the most recent story, I love this story, and I've been saying it over and over. There's a family that needed to get their vehicle fixed, went to a place in town, got the bid of $3,500. That's when you have the conversation, do we just get rid of it, right? Uh, then we got connected with them, and we fixed the vehicle for $275. I'm telling you, the Shift Garage is doing incredible things. 
And I think you believe, as I do, that anyone and everyone matters. So we've been in the lives of people as their vehicle breaks. So we're taking an offering. If you want a goal, for those of you who are goal-oriented type A crazy people like myself, $130,000 is what we're hoping to raise over the Christmas services. So I didn't want to shock you. I hope you'll come ready to sacrifice. I hope you'll come ready to give because that's what we're going to give an opportunity for you to do that and for myself to do that. But I think if you and I do this, 2017 will be full of significant God stories in the lives of people when their vehicle breaks down and they let us talk about who Jesus is. I can tell by your faces you're so excited. So I'm going to preach now very scared. So I'm going to finish this one last weekend. One last letter to Santa. To do so, I need to give you some history. So the Christmas story has an incredible moment of a baby being born. Yay. Some of you wonder, like, you know, how, how big and tall. No, we don't know any of that. But, but this whole wonderful moment, I don't know if you have this tradition where you read the Christmas story, you know, before you have breakfast, before you open up presents, and you torture your children, and it's so much fun, and, and they're looking at you, and everyone's groggy and just like, let me open the presents. And well, we read the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2, open it up, read it, and I try to read it as slow and as far as I can go until they've lost their minds. It's just a dad thing. I'm telling you, it's fun. Well, there's a part of the Christmas story that I don't read to the kids. It's the genealogy. As you're like, well, that's boring. See, in Jewish culture, the genealogy was very prized. You put it together and it was extremely, all the detail was put into it. You made certain that you had it and you passed it down. I mean, if you don't know what a genealogy is, you know, you've heard the commercials, right? You send your DNA and you find out where you're from and all that kind of stuff. If you've never done the genealogy of your family, it's kind of a fun thing to do. Well, the Christmas story, before we get to Jesus, talks about the genealogy, where he comes from. Now, there were rules to the genealogy. They were unwritten rules, but there were rules. You may not like some of them. One is, if you had the crazy uncle, you left him out of the genealogy. If you had the weirdo, I mean, many of us have, like, you just, right now you're automatically thinking, okay, if I could, and no, I would leave certain so-and-so out. And they did that. If there was a, let's call it black sheep. If there was a black sheep in the family, you didn't write him in. You left him out, and you didn't care if they got mad about it. And so this is Jewish culture. They also left the women out. Not my choice. Do not hate on me for this. But they left the women out. In fact, almost every Jewish genealogy, you will see just uh, men, the father and the sons and all that. And just that's all that it is. The women were important to them, but culturally you didn't name them. So far you should be hating this. And, but that was the cultural history. That's how they drafted genealogy, but it's very prized, very important. So before you get to the birth of Jesus, there's a genealogy and it will help you and I. Sometimes we read it and we're like, Name after name after name after name. Like, this is boring. But if you do some study behind the scenes, there's a lesson for you and I in the list of names. And so, taking what I just taught you about genealogy, let's look at the genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. You're, you're catching this, right? Well, let me tell you a little bit about these folks. Abraham, notorious liar. Yay! <laughs> In fact, if you ever thought about if your life were documented and your life were put into the Bible, what stories you would want omitted and what you would want included? Well, there's a couple stories about this guy lying. If you go on Isaac, stories about him lying. Jacob, 
The dude manipulated like crazy. Not a good dude. There's, there's times he's like, oh, that's awesome. He, he's a patriarch, they call him. But there's times he just manipulated. Then it mentions here Judah and his brothers. That might seem weird. Judah and his brothers, to give you context, there was a day they decided they did not like their younger brother. So I don't know what you did when you didn't like your siblings. Here's what they decided to do was to fake his death and sell him off into slavery. Now, I know some of you, you did think about that regarding your siblings, and you considered it and still do, but you didn't do it, though. You know, like, so we're talking about this genealogy, and already it's, it's breaking apart because I'm talking about liars and, and people who sold people into slavery, and you're thinking, would you not have normally left these people out? Well, it, it goes on, verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Hopefully you notice that that should not have been put in there. That was not normal, in, in other words. I know, ladies, you're like, no, you put the mom in there. But, but this, this was not normal. All of a sudden, we're talking about Jesus. Think about how you would draft the genealogy. You, you get the bad uncle out. You put just the good people in. But they're not only doing that. They put a, a woman in here. You need to know about Tamar. She wanted to have children. And there were certain circumstances in her life that she ended up not being able to do that. So she came up with a plan. Here was her plan was to dress up like a prostitute and seduce her father-in-law. And she did that. That's in the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, that'd be the one like, okay, leave that out. Don't, don't pass that on. It, it, it continues, though. It doesn't get better. Someone, the father of Baez, whose mother was Rahab. Again, a woman is mentioned again. It's not normal. If you don't know much about Rahab, you'll read in the Old Testament. She was a prostitute. So again, be considering, okay, you're talking about the, the baby Jesus story, the precious moment that we're, yay, this is the genealogy that precedes this all talks about these nasty moments in history. See, people who would have been reading this would have known exactly what those names meant and what happened around their lives. It continued to write stuff. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You should be fascinated, if you don't know this, that they don't mention that the, who's the mother. The mother was Bathsheba. If you've never heard the story about David and Bathsheba, Bathsheba was married to Uriah, but David decided he wanted her. And so there was an affair that occurred, a baby that was conceived. So if you're not catching this, and then eventually Uriah is killed because David doesn't know what else to do. So just inside of this one sentence, you've got murder, adultery, and horrible deception. You should be messed up at this moment going, why did they not leave? If culture said, leave this stuff out, why did the writer, why did the writer say, okay, I'm going to tell the story of Jesus and how he came and, and did incredible things. I'm talking about the son of God, son of the most high. And so we're going to draft his genealogy. Culture would say, leave the women out and leave the people who had messes out, leave them out. But he, he included them. So hopefully this brings you to like, so who wrote this? <laughs> Matthew wrote it. And I think there's evidence why Matthew included the people with messes. Matthew himself had his own mess. Matthew was a Jewish guy, but he had a job that made him an outcast. See, he signed up to be a tax collector. But not only was he just a tax collector, he took taxes from his own people and gave those taxes to the Romans who were oppressing his people. So if you do the equation in your brain, meaning his people were mad at him for taking their money and giving it away, and that's what he was doing, but typically a tax collector wouldn't just collect taxes, he would add his own percentage onto that and basically swindle people out of more money. 
Matthew, that tax collector, the notorious tax collector who, who typically tax collectors only could spend time with prostitutes and thieves because no one else would hang out with them, taking money from his own people. He wrote the genealogy. He led into the story of Jesus. And that should mess with you. In fact, he met Jesus, though. Watch this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. Some of you are like, why do you ask him? Like, why not somebody like, doing some good things in the community? Follow me, he told him. And, and Matthew got up and followed him. I want to begin to plug in these puzzle pieces to you because not only do you have the story of Jesus that we're all celebrating, we've all been buying presents and you got plans, you got food, you got this whole celebration that when you wake up on Christmas morning, most of us are going to celebrate with friends, maybe family, and we're going to have a great time. And Some of us will actually read the Luke chapter 2 version of the story, and you need to know what precedes that. It's a genealogy full of messy people who made stupid mistakes. And the one who wrote it had his own messes. And it got me thinking, what if you and I, as adults now, were to write our final letter to Santa? What would it say? I wonder if some of us would say, dear Santa, I want my mess cleaned up. Well, whatever mistakes are in your life or whatever, whatever's gone on in your life, if, if Santa could just give that to you this year, your mess, your choices that, that kind of loom over you, kind of maybe surround you and, and make you feel like, you're just not good. What if someone were to show up and say, I'm going to clean all this up for you? Someone was like, can that happen? Sign me up for that. Let's just think practically. If you've ever had someone clean up one of your messes, like literally, I've told you this before, that one of, one of my chores at home is to do the dishes. The, the reason is because is I have obsessive-compulsive disorder I'm certain about. It. I've never been diagnosed, but, but I'm pretty sure that I'm the only one in the house that does it right regarding dishes. And so I was like, hey, I can't cook worth anything. And so if Katie cooks, give me the dishes. I'll own that, and I'll, I'll do awesome. Right, we've got a dishwasher. I can put those in that dishwasher like no other person. And <clears throat> so there was a day that it was piling up. To give you an understanding of how much it was piling up, it had gotten so bad that not only were the dishes in the sink, but I think some of you know what I'm about to say. They were on the counter as well. I mean, you know, like when you, you don't feel bad about yourself if you can put it in the sink and it stays in the sink. When you start to collect things on the counter, you're like, I should probably do something here. And so it started building up, building up. And so I did what most people would do. I'm like, I am going to go watch a movie and so I was, I was tired. I wasn't in the mood to do that. And I went downstairs and watched a movie and just vegged out. And I came up knowing, I got to do the dishes. We got some friends coming over. And I come up the stairs and look at the sink empty. I'm thinking, are there angels in our house? And what I learned was that the rest of my family decided just to be nice, not to leverage it against me later, <laughs> just to be nice, did all of the dishes. Amazing people. And, and if you've ever had this experience where someone has taken what you were responsible to do and they just did it for you just to be nice, you're like, you're amazing. It's an awesome feeling when someone cleans up your mess that you had to clean up or were supposed to. But see, many of us in our own lives, it's not the dishes. That's not the problem. It's not the laundry. It's not the house. It's not the car. 
It's the mistakes that we've made, that mess that just kind of stays there. And if you've got a mess or a mistake in your life that has continued, it just looms over you, I would say that it's probably because there's some shame. Shame that you made that choice. Shame that you got into this position where you didn't know what to do and you didn't know how to do it and you kind of just stayed there. In fact, here's what I would say. Shame tries to convince you to stay trapped in your mistakes. I think many of us can even reflect on this a, a moment, a decision, or, or maybe it was a season that you made choices you shouldn't make, and you're like, I, and right after that, you didn't have to invite shame to come over, it just came over, and it just, and it just camped out, says, I'm setting up, I'm staying here for good. If you think about the mistakes in your life that you still regret, that you still, in a sense, hold on to, and you can't believe you did it, or you're sorry you did it, but it still feels like you have a mess. The Bible because you and I are not that unique in the sense we make choices we shouldn't. The Bible talks about this. Look at Ephesians. This is out of the message. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. Now just stay there for a second. We all did it. A lot of times when you make choices you shouldn't, you know what one of the first thoughts that the devil throws at you is you're the only one who's ever done this. It's only you doing this. You are the bad person. Don't tell anybody. And you need to know something about this. Every one of us, every single one of us has made choices we shouldn't make. That's why the Bible says, I'm not going to let you dance around this or avoid it. We all did it. What do all of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it? All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with a whole lot of us. I don't know if you've ever thought that. Why didn't God lose his temper? I mean, I've talked to many people in the midst of maybe about to do a wedding and they've never really been in church before and they're, they're looking up and they're expecting lightning to come down. They're like, does he know? Does he know I'm in his, how's this going to work? And many of us think that. Like, why? when's God going to lose his temper with me? When's going to be the last time that he's like, all right, I'm done with you? See, our mistakes, the messes that we create, have a tendency to bring shame into our lives. And so we begin to think that not only are we making poor choices, but God is now out to get us. But the Christmas story, the Christmas story tells us something completely otherwise, uh, so different than that. If you're ruled by your past, if you're ruled, if you think that you've committed sins, that you wonder, I wonder if God would ever, and maybe you've even included that God won't forgive you. You need to know why. Why in the genealogy did we see people who had messes? Why include them? Why break tradition? Why let Matthew of all people, of all people, I mean, come on, of all people, why let Matthew draft the genealogy and lead into the story of Jesus? I believe there's something to learn about messes. God's mercy is greater than our mess. Why is this all included? Why was this all piled in? And, 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 and frankly, this is why many of us don't read this part 
on Christmas Day. We're like, all right, children, we're going to read the genealogy. I'm going to explain to you about Rahab and Tamar. Don't do that. Don't ever do that. Just wait till they're older. We don't, we don't let that pollute the real Christmas story. But do you see how relevant it is? The genealogy and who wrote the genealogy tells you and I something about Jesus who is coming. That it's your mess is why he came. My mess. The mistakes, the choices that he knew that you and I would make. So I didn't read to you the whole portion in the message where it talked about, like, why didn't God just lose his temper and start throwing lightning down and just, just lose it on us? Verse 5 says, instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives if you need me to interpret that, he took our messes, he took our mistakes, and made us alive in Christ. You know why Jesus came? To fix our messes. The biggest mess, the sin mess. So when you think about the genealogy, and you look at the history, Jesus came from those people, but he also came for those people. So no longer do those Jews have to be names like, I wonder what that means. I don't even know how to pronounce that word. And you just begin to trudge through. Where's the good part? When does Jesus come? When does Jesus come? No, it's those people that are there on purpose, listed on purpose. Matthew, who follows Jesus, spends time with Jesus in person. He's like, I want you to get this. I want you to understand why. That's what he's trying to help you and I get. Not just who, but why. And he came for those people. So in another gospel, another story about Jesus in the Bible, John tells us stuff. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him, if you're interested in having Jesus actually clean up your mess, you need to, it tells us, what, believe him, like believe, believe what he said about himself that he is the Son of God, Son of the Most High, that he is the only way to forgiveness. To all those who believed him and accepted him. In other words, brought him into their lives saying, you know what, I'm going to listen to what he has to say. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to press in, lean in. I'm going to accept him as my Savior. Accept him. He gave the right to become children of God. It even explains that more. They are reborn <laughs> Not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. See, the Christmas story is amazing. If you read the Luke 2 version, oh, it's awesome. When you learn about all the shepherds and the magi and everyone gathering up, by the way, I know many of us think that this is what happened. They all showed up at the same time based on what their iPhones were telling them. Hey, it's time to get there. <laughs> It didn't really play out that way. I know it's our nativity scene. These folks were there at all different times. But what you and I can learn is that the Christmas story is not just a story about how Jesus was born. The story is about how God came to earth to clean up our mess. And the genealogy and the writer of the genealogy tells us so much, so it brings you and I to a bit of a decision and I'll point something out. You can't hold on to forgiveness or you can't hold on to your mess being cleaned up and shame at the same time. 
you can't try to carry both. And many of us are trying to do this. Carry, I'm forgiven by Jesus, and I'm going to try to forgive myself for what I did. I, many people, I, I, just over and over and over, the same conversation. I know God's forgiven me. How do I forgive myself? Because I keep thinking about what I did. I keep thinking about who I hurt and how I did that and how I wrecked my marriage, how I, I didn't parent right, how I did that at work or how I said this or didn't do that or took that. And many of us are living, you need to know, in shame. That's what shame does. Over and over says, look what you did, look what you did, look what you did, look what you did. And Jesus said, no, 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 I came to clean that up. Maybe this will help illustrate it. I'm a sports nut. And so I love sports stories. And there's an old sports story that I even told it four or five years ago. But I think it fits here. There's a football player, Noble Doss, who played for a university called Texas. I know none of you like Texas. No one does. But follow this. Playing for Texas. Playing against one of the rivals, Baylor. If you don't know anything about football, you're like, uh, you're talking Greek to me, I don't know. There's a guy who gets the ball and throws it to people. That's the simplest way I can talk about it. Noble Doss is one of the guys that the ball was thrown to. And there's a particular game, he's, they're playing their rivals. And he's 20 yards away from catching the ball, running it in, and going to the championship game. The quarterback, the guy with the ball, throws him the ball, it goes to him hits his hands, and he drops it. Now, that's all you now know. If you've never followed this story, you don't know this. There's documentaries about this, but that's, that wrecked him. Now, now, if we just stayed in that spot, you're like, all right, the pastor told us about a dude who played for Texas who got thrown the winning touchdown pass, and he dropped it. Yeah, that would be hard for me to let go, right? That would be hard for me to just, like, walk on, and that's how he lived his life. But let me give you the rest of his bio. This man was happily married for more than six decades. We're done. I mean, come on. That's amazing. Happily married for six decades. He was a father, a grandfather. He served in the Navy during World War II. He appeared on the cover of Life magazine with his Texas teammates. He intercepted 17 passes during his collegiate career, a university record. He won two NFL titles with the Philadelphia Eagles, the Texas High School Hall of Fame, and the Longhorn Hall of Fame include his name. 50 years after he dropped that pass, after he had been married for so long and become a dad and a grandpa, been put into Hall of Fame, won NFL titles, 50 years after that, he's having a conversation with one of the new coaches for the Texas Longhorns. And do you know what Noble Doss talked to him about? How he dropped the ball 50 years ago. In fact, there were other people watching this conversation go on. And do you know that this man, who is now elderly, begins to tell this new coach this story, sobbing about the dropped pass 50 years ago forgetting all of his accomplishments. In fact, there were games that he won when he did catch the ball. But all he could remember was when he dropped it. See, when I hear that story, I'm like, that's like you and I all the time. We make a choice that we should never make. We 
drop the ball, we mess up, and then the devil gets involved and says, you're never going to be allowed to forget that. God's going to hold that against you the rest of your life. If you watch the documentary on this guy, you know what his teammates say about him? We don't know why he won't get over it. They're not harping on him about it. No one is like, this guy's amazing, an amazing man, an amazing football player, but he won't let it go. See, that sounds like you and I, where we just let shame dominate us. (laughs) How cool is it that God knew that you and I would be dominated by shame? See, I don't even have to ask for very long. You can remember the stuff that you should not have done that you've done, the stuff that you led you away from God that broke relationships. Many of us do not have to spend time thinking about it, but many of us are ruled by it. So Jesus came. We call it Christmas. <laughs> he lives for a while, and eventually he's murdered. They figured out legally, which wasn't legally to do it, but he was nailed to a cross, and they killed him. And what many people at that time didn't know is they had just killed the Son of God. Witnesses tell us, and God told us, three days later, he comes back to life, (laughs) walks around, sees hundreds of people, and establishes that your mess does not have to be something that holds you down the rest of your life. I don't know what your theology or understanding about God and life is, but I will tell you right now, if you're trying to hold on to shame, you don't have to. But the Bible is clear. It says this. If you believe him and accept him, your sins are forgiven. Your shame is blotted out. The Bible says wiped white as snow. I mean, come on. We get that. So I wanted to leave some time here because we got time. I would imagine a group of us has shame that we need to deal with, something we got to process this. So here's what I'd like for you to do. It's very simple. If you've never been a part of our church, never been around, here's something we do. A lot of times at the end of the sermon, we we just have some quiet time because many of us are about to go get kids or go out into crazy and it's like, okay, things are going to get hectic and we get back into the mode of everything. And so before we do that, that's just... Bow our heads, close our eyes. Let's do that. Bow your heads, close your eyes. And I want you to have a conversation with God. I want you to press in and say, God, am I trying to hold on to my past? Is there shame in your life that you're not supposed to carry? And so I'm just going to be quiet, and I'm going to let you silently just have a conversation with God about what you're holding on to. Are you holding on to shame, or are you holding on to forgiveness? You have that combo with God.
your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you've never accepted the forgiveness of God in the first place, but you're ready, if you're tired of carrying shame and you're ready to own forgiveness, I can help you have begin this conversation with God. Just privately say this to God, God, I'm sorry for all my sins, all my mistakes. God, I accept your forgiveness. I believe Jesus came for me. And I decide to follow him today. I'm going to let him have every corner of my life. God, I turn my life over to you. I choose your way, your will. Thank you, God for loving me enough to send Jesus. God, I pray for everyone who is wrestling with the tension between shame and forgiveness. God, I pray that you will, in a loving way, remind us that we don't have to, nor are we designed to carry shame. God, for those who have been following you, who just started following me, your Holy Spirit remind us over and over and over again that you sent your son to clean up our mess. We are so grateful. I want to tell you on behalf of the whole church, God, that we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what Christmas is. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sacrificing for us. Thank you for grace and mercy. We love you, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.